Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 484. And hello, bonus episode on a Monday. I never put episodes out on Monday. Um, but I had a chat with Mark Mylod and it proper blew me away. I loved it. I didn't know what to expect. I've not spoken to Mark before. Mark has got a new film out called The Menu that's out now, which blew me away. So when I was offered the chance to talk to him, I was like, yeah, I thought that film was amazing. Let's talk. And then I was like, well, he did Succession as well, which is one of my favourite shows of all time. Oh, and Game of Thrones. Amazing. But then I dug deeper and looked at the stuff he did early on in his career. And I knew this was going to be a hell of a chat. And we only had 50 minutes, but by God, are you in for a treat of a 50 minutes right here. So strap yourselves in. We're brought to you as ever by speech development records.com. That's where you can get my merch. Patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip is where you can chuck in a dollar a month to support. And twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pip Yo is where you can watch me up to my nonsense all the time. Let's get into this because this is an amazing chat. You're not going to believe some of the things that Mark worked on. And he spoke so eloquently and honestly about all of it honestly i line this up as a bonus episode because time was restricted and i thought well i don't know that much about the guy i'm a big fan of his recent work i don't know that much about his history i don't know if we'll have a lot to talk about this could have been a double episode let alone a full length one anyway this is episode 484 of the distraction pieces podcast with mark mylod Hi, Scroobius. How are you? I'm good, Mark. How are you? I'm fascinated by your artwork going on over your left shoulder. What is that? It kind of fits with um, oh, the menu God. and succession a bit. History is is written by the winners. That's fantastic. Um, it's by a guy who did this thing where he had a realisation that so many of the kind of n- n- nobles throughout British history had yeah. the money this is where it takes a turn, to be Batman if they'd wanted to, but chose <laughs> to just be rich pricks instead um, and kind of exploited stuff. I love it as a conscious choice. <laughs> so, so, yeah, he did a series of painting kind of masks over over all these these aristocrats because it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting uh, time. And you've spent a lot of time l- l- looking at, at the super wealthy. So we're going to talk about a lot of that, but... but but how are you at the moment in in general? Obviously, it's I think all writers, producers, directors are finding it increasingly ch- challenging t- to write fiction in a world that is so unbelievably you know hard to get your head round. So yeah. so so how are you? There's obviously you span America and the UK politically. There's been a lot going on in both recently. Are you well? Are you keeping as sane as can be expected? As sane as can be expected, yeah. I'm in an incredibly privileged position in that, you know, I, I live in a nice place in Brooklyn in New York and I have done for the past 10 years. And, and I've, you know, I've enjoyed a lovely run of work working with some of the best writers in the world. Um, mm. And so, you know, on a personal level, I'm so blooming lucky. I really am. At a more political level, then, yeah, that's that's a whole Pandora's box, isn't it? We've got the results of the midterms coming in as we speak in the States today. Um, I can't tell which way it's going to go. It's, uh, it seems to be it's certainly not the red wave that we feared, but, um, you know, there's a few results to come in yet. So I'm not quite sure 
which way that's gone away. Existentially, satire is getting harder yeah. because because everything that we, you know, every time we think we're pushing reality, then then reality just trumps us quite literally sometimes. Uh, <laughs> um, so um, that form of storytelling is 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 challenging, and, and within a fast moving zeitgeist as well. Um, the, I think the probably the most healthy creative approach to that dynamic is just to try to tell good stories, compelling stories with great characters and. Uh, and, and let the rest take care of itself somewhat. And mate, you've been getting to do a lot of that. How weird is it though that <laughs> just speaking on these on these midterms that we've got to the point where, as you say, it's hard to say how things have gone at the moment, but compared to recent years, that feels like good news. Yeah. Because normally by this time in anything that's been going on, it's just been terrible. So it's a positive now to be, can't really tell at the moment. So that's good. That's good. No news is good news. Yeah. It's a really odd odd situation. Well, um, I want to talk to you about the menu and basically a million other things because we've got a decent amount of time. But I can't think of many times that I've been more fascinated by someone's journey when I've started doing my research Mm-hmm. for this so this isn't going to be a linear conversation we're going to jump back and forth on timelines right. um obviously we definitely have to talk about the menu a succession maybe a bit of game of thrones but i want to go back to start with because something that fascinates me about the uk and it's partly because of the bbc is that shows like eastenders and casualty and many others are kind of live training get grounds for all areas of a production, not just for actors. I've talked mm. to Michael Fassbender about this, but then I've talked to Tom George about like all sorts of different people have that experience. So how was that kind of starting off for you? Because you started off on EastEnders right, mm. or have, have done an episode or whatever. Yeah. How important do you feel that is in the UK as as I said, a training ground, an incredibly hard training ground because the turnover is insane and all this. But yeah. like, how is that as part of your your journey i guess honestly i feel it's such a kind of buzzword at the moment and i said she feels like a cliche but it's a total truism that i feel genuinely massively privileged and sad really to what as i watch you know pretty much my whole life ever, ever since the time of thatcher which shows you how old i am um that um that the whole structure of the bbc has been so besieged and 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 eroded you know some of it one's a little more circumspect is is you know hoist by their own petard sometimes but as a cultural institution it's almost unique on the planet um yeah. and uh and i don't you know on and if and when it's gone or you know denatured to the point of being unrecognizable as this public service corporation and the beautiful idea of to entertain educate and inform um that that was their original remit it's an incredibly beautiful thing in the modern world. And I feel that everything that eroded is a kind of, um, is an empty kind of materialistic rhetoric about, oh, we can't have something that people have to pay for. I just, politically, I just don't agree with that. I think that the service it provides to the country is extraordinary. Um, I know ideologically people, many people will disagree with that. If my own personal experience of it, I joined the BBC as what one might call a runner or a PA or, or um, a gopher. And I worked on everything from grandstand to EastEnders um, and uh, the old Blue Peter, as it used to be. I worked on everything. And the chance to just run around and knock on doors and say, could you come to the studio now? And the learning curve that put you on, what you learn by osmosis, every day of just being in that environment for me was just uh, absolutely priceless um it taught me very quickly 
that I was attracted to comedy, um, uh, attracted to that kind of, uh, to that light entertainment department. And, and it just so happened that a lot of the shows I ended up steering myself towards were with these new wave comedians, brilliant comedians, which led me towards working with people like Vic and Bob and the Far Show gang, Carolina Hearn, and all that gang. And all of that, when I got the opportunity to direct something, gave me an incredible kind of launch into directing with this extraordinary kind of learning curve of making so many terrible mistakes. Um, <laughs> but luckily, working in a place and an environment that was just endlessly creative and and kind of fearless. And, and, and learning from the mistakes of others can be yeah. the, the, the best shortcut to not making your own mistakes, I think. I, I completely agree. I think being on sets, the osmosis that you get from just being on sets and around sets. I, I moved into acting from music, so I kind of leapfrogged the kind of EastEnders route, which almost against my own will, because, again, I do think it's fascinating, but still every gig I've got, I've come away feeling I'm a better actor now yeah, because yeah. of the people I've been around and not necessarily only the cast, because of, of the grip I've been around or a particular cameraman that will teach me something about positioning and, and, and these these different things. I think, yeah, it's amazing. And I think the importance of the BBC is to continue to give those opportunities to everyone, not just yeah. to people who went to, to private schools and, and whatever else. And I think it's really interesting because you're right there has been some some hoisting <laughs> some petard hoisting in recent years but it feels like that's mainly on the inform and educate side sadly the mm. entertain mm. side i think just continues to be absolutely astounding and and mm. takes yeah. risks that that other channels maybe can't take and other organizations can't take and yeah it's an amazing institute we touched upon i mean you spoke about things like blue peter and grandstand i want to talk briefly about a show that was probably the most important show in my life for a number of years. And then probably I've completely forgot about it until I was doing this research today. And it's Made Marion and Her Merry Men. <laughs> that was everything to me. I was so into that show. And this is going to sound like such kind of rewriting of history, but that was a strong f female lead. Yeah. And and there weren't that many of them as a kid gr growing up in Essex, like watching whatever's on TV. Yeah. Again, I may be over-romanticising over this here, but... I loved that show. How was that to be to be part of? Absolute heaven. You know, again, you know, working on the likes of, you know, Grandstand and, and Blue Peter, the fantasy that I had even at that time was to be on location with a single camera and actors and a script that was fun and, and challenging. And uh and my very first location job was, yeah, was uh, as the kind of gopher on Maid Marion and Her Merry Men, which was an extraordinary cutting edge drama it won all sorts of awards um, yeah. um and the brilliant director david um who was so inclusive we were talking about you know learning from mistakes but also i mean i'd learned massively from from positive influences of what would this person do and david um and i'm completely blanking on his last name um he was so generous to me he knew that i wanted to direct and was so inclusive in his process of for you know of his staging and his the, the way he'd work you know work staging and, and photography i had no idea he was so just um, and spread this kind of positive atmosphere throughout the whole cast and crew it's just a total joy and tony robinson of course you know better known perhaps to many as Baldrick and Blackadder yeah. um, he wrote these brilliant scripts that had this real 
biting edge to them and that you know female empowerment element through the maid marion character it felt it was so fresh at the time and so witty uh and uh, yeah it was a total joy it was uh it was one of my happiest experiences at the bbc i love it and and how does that compare then from that being your first on location job you know helping out running about for everyone to doing a show like succession that from the off felt huge it felt script wise performance wise direction wise every i can't think of a show in recent history that from the off was so lauded and so Mm. and so praised and then each season more and more the last every season in fact has had some of the best season finales in tv history in my opinion how does that kind of thing compare i know we're doing a big jump and we will fill in the middle bit as well but (laughs) how do those things compare when thinking back and then jumping forward it's the it's the connective tissue of it. There's so many who've been have been around for so long and so kind of passionate about the business for so long. It, I suppose it's a bit self indulgent, but if, if I'm allowed to do that in our kind of mini retrospective going on here, <laughs> do um, I do love all. Uh, if I look at the connective tissue that leads from from Maid Marian to Succession, all the missteps um, and and the and the luck and happenstance, that, the, the connection between. For instance, it's not actually about Succession actually, but um, as I said, Maid Marian was a lovely. I was the gopher, you know, I was the the van driver. I'd make the tea um, and. You know, years later, I got the job on Game of Thrones. Um, and my first experience of it, I got sent the scripts and said, okay, you need to be in Croatia on Tuesday morning in some ancient town somewhere. We've got to do a tech scout with the crew. So suddenly I'm jumping on a plane from New York and you know, on a red eye, I'm changing planes in Paris and I get to Croatia and I'm completely out of it because I'm so sleepy and I'm a terrible flyer. And I get in the a car, picks me up and takes me down to this ancient town. I'm up on the ancient walls of the beautiful town, looking over the Mediterranean, drinking coffee down. And there's all the crew there waiting for me. I've never met any of them before. And it's absolutely terrifying. And I already feel like a complete imposter walking into this huge drama juggernaut um and i look at them all all waiting for me to say something smart and i hear a little voice out of the crew say maid marion and it was this guy who was the key grip on maid marion who was no way. on and and honestly i i, I could have hugged him because i i, I you know I've, I've seldom i felt so nervous walking into a group of people because i was so in awe of them they all yeah. became good mates i ended up working with them for three years but but there was a lovely connectivity to that journey we'd both taken together and ended up you know on this ancient wall in croatia together but for succession that was on the one hand you know feels quite connected in that my early days was bbc comedy both in terms as a crew member and then eventually as a director and, and and then of course you know and and Jesse Armstrong the creator and and my friend and collaborator on Succession had you know similar roots as a writer with his comedy writing on the more satirical side and of, and of course actually the Channel Four's Peep Show which was one of my all time favourite comedies mm-hmm. so we kind of uh, though we'd never actually met before we'd moved in many of the same circles. As for the scope of succession, I suppose that evolved and Game of Thrones was a massive educator for me in terms of actually, you know, achieving scope and actually evolving perhaps a more cinematic eye. The rest of succession, just pure instinct, I suppose. But having, you know, having been directing for a while, I have had the benefit of being able to evolve that eye and to find that scope when the opportunity is there. One of the lovely things about Game of Thrones, for instance, and something that I took forward into succession was at their best. David and Dan's writing had this brilliant combination of of incredibly intimate and then incredible scope. Um, uh, it was a bonding thing between David and Dan and I when I first 
went to talk to them to basically ask if I could direct on their show because I loved it so much and basically tell them why, you know, I should direct on it. Um, and there was an early scene, there was a scene in, in episode, in the first season of Game of Thrones between Cersei and the old King Mark Strong's character, um, um, where they basically just, it was a very quiet scene, a two-hander, where the two of them are in their bedchamber and they're just talking about the failure of their marriage. And I thought it was extraordinary writing because set in this fictitious kind of semi-medieval world, and yet it felt so fresh and pertinent to any modern marriage. And the intimacy of it and the insight it gave me into Cersei's character, into Lena's character, for all her actions going forward throughout the journey of, the, uh, of that whole series, I thought was absolutely priceless um, and just brilliant character building. And, and that was, it also happened to be their favourite scene. And so that was a, a, a big bonding thing for us. So, And I suppose my ethos has always been character first, the intimacy, the f- dig into the characters. Why are they doing what they're doing? Why are they making the choices that they're making? And then you can build on that, the outer ethos of, uh, of uh, how you manifest that on the screen, that the, the scale with which you do that is, is almost secondary and and kind of to a certain extent you know if you're lucky enough to have the budget and time to achieve it uh, is the kind of easier bit because that comes down to a certain amount of obviously craft and guile but um but a, a lot comes down to if you've got a beautiful location you can probably make it look great if you want to the the biggest trick with succession is actually to follow the ethos of the show and not to fetishize the wealth to, to almost not be in denial of it, but not to notice it consciously. Um, as soon as we start fetishizing, then we're we're contradicting the very kind of values that we're trying to try to imbue the the story with. So that is a big challenge, particularly when you're in incredibly beautiful places. I, I love it, but you're exactly right. Like when I heard about Succession, I thought I'm not going to be interested in this show because I don't want to hear about incredibly wealthy people. But it's yeah. the characters. It's similar with industry and another show that i'm a fan of recently that on paper shouldn't appeal to me at all but the characters are so wonderful and it's one of the things i love about the the menu is you kind of again are getting to look at the fascinating existence of billionaires essentially and i think it's a fascinating thing to look into more and more because a wealth in general is fascinating to look into because the existence of billionaires has meant that we've had to kind of invent stuff for them to spend their money on. And it's kind of where the (laughs) menu comes into it. And high-end restaurants and food and drink and experiences are a big part of that. Like bottles of wine worth millions of dollars aren't worth millions of dollars. We had to come up with something when we allowed the idea of a billionaire to exist because otherwise it is. It's endless. You can't spend it. So how is that kind of thing to to look into and to 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 meditate on almost the the folly of of finding ways for millionaires to spend their money i love that question um well first of all i think i probably you know in terms of being drawn to that you know skewering i'm probably drawn to it with a bit of a chip on my shoulder which i kind of learned a bit off at the bbc because in the british film industry and particularly at that time i came into it you know having like not but literally failed all my A-levels and my dad was a policeman and my mum worked in a bra factory. So I, I didn't have that I didn't have that kind of blueprint that a lot of the people I was working with had that they they were incredibly smart. They've been to Oxford or Cambridge or they've been to a private school or whatever. And so I had this self-imposed chip on my shoulder, I think, from the off, which uh 
spent a lot of time trying to file down subsequently consciously or not but but when it came to the menu and i love this idea actually just having to invent you know things with a certain value so that billionaires can get rid of their cash it's just it's beautiful i mean it's topical as we have a billionaire trying his best to get rid of as much money as possible or with yeah. social media at the moment but yeah exactly yeah or, or let's yeah let's or let's build space rockets um yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and uh just anything to spend the money on um yeah. but um I, I come at it from a slightly different perspective a, a more slightly more kind of anthropological i suppose in that i i know i find it difficult to vocalize without sounding really wanky but i come at this thing that characters start or an individual starts from a place of innocence and then uh, and then through our flaws as humans, we kind of take long turns and become denatured. And a big draw for me on the menu, uh, apart from, as I said, that chip on my shoulder, Margot, Anya Taylor-Joy's character, giving me that kind of entree into that world as she's being the fish out of water in this room full of very rich diners and, and feeling out of place in that world. And also kind of calling her version of bullshit on it to her. Um, that was my way in. But Rafe's character, the chef, um, his place of privilege as one of the world's greatest chefs. When we first spoke on the phone about the role, we both had this, came at it from exactly the same way, not as a psychotic baddie or madman or whatever, but as a as an artist who'd lost his way, who who was consumed with self-loathing because of the choices, the cumulative choices that he'd made in his mm. life, and his art being denatured and uh, um, perverted by his own ego, um, and that hubris, and by and is by a relationship with money, but with his financiers, and so that underlying kind of poignance of his of his own flaws and and how that has consumed him with self loathing. I found that really relatable um, in the way that. I think all artists and every, every individual can look, if you do that fast rewind on your life, and, and if you were to click through in a certain mindset of all the, the missteps that we've all made, that can, if you're unstable as that character is, that can take you to a really dark place. Um, the brilliant thing about Rafe, of course, is that he's able to do that and also be hilariously funny, um, yeah. which is the kind of miracle of him as an actor. But I extend that same idea into both succession and actually going back to Game of Thrones, you know, Sir we were talking about Lena Headey earlier with with her character and and any of the supposedly kind of evil characters or flawed characters in in any of those projects. And let's talk about the menu specifically. All the diners in that room, with the possible exception of uh, of Margot Anya's character, have become distorted by ego and, and a sense of privilege and and that extreme wealth. In the case of some of them. And the kind of liberation, if you look at the film through a certain prism, that Chef Slowick delivers to them as he kind of strips back their vanities. And a big influence for me was this Bunuel film, The Exterminating Angel, where it's a beautiful film. And I'd seen it ages ago. And as soon as I read the script of the menu, I went back to watch it again. And what struck me was this extraordinary sense of culpability that this elite class of, of guests have when they find themselves figuratively trapped in this room but there's this dawning sense of culpability a sense of guilt and, the, and their place in the inequity of the society they live in and i wanted to to give our diners everybody in that room that same kind of journey guided by the kind of conscience if you like of of, of slowick so uh, and stripping them back to a place of 
innocence to a, to a place where they were idealists and uh, more kind of um, before the kind of flaws of life's journey took them to this misguided place. Um, so there's a kind of tenderness to it, oddly, for, for all the kind of darkness and brutality of the, of, of the movie. There's, I do, and I do the same in succession for all the flaws of the Roy family. I find myself almost trying to protect them or at least understand them and, and all their flaws. Yeah, and, and there's a beautiful... Th- delicacy with the um the journey to to accepting that culpability that is done with both humor and darkness because of the super wealthy reluctance to accept they've done anything wrong so (laughs) all of the dark stuff goes on for far too long before anyone goes hang on this is probably a bit wrong is it there's a lot of denial there and again i completely related to that i talk about this a lot but I try never to slag off any films or TV or anything like that because I don't think anyone sets out to make bad TV or Mm. bad film. But I certainly know that I've ignored red flags on projects because I'm flattered and honoured to be involved. Because, again, coming from a working-class atmosphere, not expecting to be here, you are like, oh, wow, how how lovely that I'm asked to be in this. And then when something doesn't quite go as good as you think, you you do have to kind of sit back and accept... Yeah, it was the script was never that great, was it? It was just <laughs> nice that they were saying I was great and they wanted me to be involved and yeah, and things I, I, like that. So it's it's a really interesting <laughs> one. But speaking of the delicacy, one of the things I really l- loved was Anya T- a Taylor Joy's character, and she, she can't put a foot wrong for me at the moment, anyway. But something I found really interesting. I don't want to give. T- too much away it's always awkward to talk about films yeah, and not I know, yeah. To give spoilers. yeah so much is to do with the surprise of it isn't it but uh, without giving too much away her character's job really added an interesting comment to the n- nuance of this breaking down of the customer and service mm. provider yeah. r- relationship and role in society and that's mm. kind of the thing that i think race character is battling with a lot is he's both the person being looked up to but at the same time he is the service pr- a provider he yeah. is he's this revered guy but mm. he's being paid to do his job yeah. and he should be grateful and so on and so forth it's a weird balance and i think that's a similar thing with with anya's character and i thought the, th- the thing i really l- liked was that part was never hammered home it was touched upon it was discussed kind of privately and delicately um like how important was it to not over labor those elements well first of all well, really important just because you know it didn't need belaboring you know it, we you know audiences are so smart you do drop the merest kind of hint of subtext and they're onto it you know the uh so that so it just didn't need to be pointed up further and but the ripple effect of that dynamic between her place in her life at that moment and and, sh- and where chef slowick where race character is it just provided a really beautiful conflict and tension between them in that because not only they are directly in conflict as she's trying to manipulate stroke outwit him to to escape basically to to survive if you like um then um which puts them of course in, in direct conflict but that is that is balanced with this deep connection with them um that that empathy that intuition qualities that they both have as service providers in whatever sense um, in that they see other people, they they intuit their needs and wants and desires for for gorgeous food or whatever it may be, um, and that recognition of, of of those same qualities, of course, binds them together. And and although come at it from opposite timelines, in that she is still, however cynical outwardly, 
is this light? Is this force for life? And 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 he is the opposite, of course, um, who who sees himself in this dark place with no escape. And that that kind of debate, that chess game between them, for me was always the the nucleus, the the heart of the film, um, and that we would build the journey of the diners, uh, uh, and of course the the. the the genre story element of this fight for survival um, through these various courses that would be built around that idealistic dialogue, I suppose. Yeah, I love that. And 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 the the food element is really interesting. I mean, partly as someone who who likes f- food, it's interesting alone in 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 that way. But just as a construct, um, a friend of mine, DJ Yoda, mm-hmm. I was chatting to him a while back about making music, and he was saying. If he's told to go away and make an album, that's really hard. If he's told he needs to put together a Halloween album, sweet, I'm yeah. on it. And the beauty, of, the beauty of the structure here is the film is presented to us in courses. Was that a handy c- construct to work with as the director to know that you've got these segments and you know what you want to deliver in each one as such? Yes, I think it's a double-edged sword personally in that I've, I've watched films many times, even when I've enjoyed the film overall, when when to be somewhat kind of reminded of the timeline of the experience of watching the film um, hasn't quite worked for me when it's, you know, uh, says July and you know the film is going to end up in December and you think, oh, actually, I wish we were in October now. Um, yeah. <laughs> in, in this case, um, I think we weaponized it in a fun way. Uh, it, it does, of course, give structure. And I, I totally agree with your, with your mate um, in that, you know, Art, I think, thrives within confines, doesn't it? The, the, whether that be a timeline or, or, or a genre, in this case, um, to, to build our, our satirical points and our comedic points um, within the genre of kind of thriller, horror, whatever, um, is is a, is a really fun box to be in. Um, in um, the structure of the courses, I think, gave us a chance to to actually move forward what would be a four-hour, you know, course um, into a sub two hour story um which so of course it's a great time that also gave us a chance to you know to for an, an extra opportunity for us to have a poke at, uh, at the whole kind of food porn phenomenon and, and to just have have fun with that as well which is um always welcome when we're trying to you know have a poke at the excesses of that particular art form on, on nicholas holt's character is key to that because he, he's very much the 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 present a representation of that world and that and that obsession but the cast in general is amazing and again i think that really helps that you at any point i felt you could cut to any of the tables and i'd want to know what they're talking about because yeah. the characters were so good the cast was was so good just quickly one of the amazing cast members is john Leguizamo. he recently put out an amazing open letter about representation yeah. in in tv and film and i just wanted to touch upon it briefly obviously it's um not having us as two white men mm-hmm. really need to debate too much it's 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 one yeah, for us, to, us to, uh, to listen on but it's something that i've been thinking about a lot recently as an actor who has a stammer but has never played a character that has a stammer and i work with the british stammering association a lot and we're trying to push for more characters that have stammers and more representation of stammering. But mm-hmm. it's such an interesting and weird and, and muddled world because I personally don't believe that only actors who stammer should play characters who, who right. st- that's, yeah. st- that's stammer. Obviously, I want more work, and yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of, of, <laughs> of taking the handbrake off on that as such because that excites me as an artist. But it's a really interesting world, and I think what are your thoughts 
thoughts on where we are representation-wide and what more we need to do within the industry, I guess? I think it's just, it's it's got to be an ongoing thing, hasn't there? The, I always feel it's like kind of uh, depressed, I think, when um, when you'll get a movement like Me Too, for instance, and, and, and you know, for, for a year, everybody will be talking the talk and, and doing the things. And, and then a year later, you know, we kind of forget about it, like Black Lives yeah. Matter. And then, and, and then, and then it just seems to be forgotten from the public consciousness in this kind of TikTok of the cultural kind of fast forward that we're all in. So I, yeah. I hope that actually when there is a movement towards actually making in terms of the performance world more reflective of our of our society as a whole and globally that it's actually got foundations and not and isn't just the kind of craze of the week um the, which is uh and you know hopefully with any of those movements and with john's kind of critico about latinx representation um i i hope that that will also have foundations that will be heard and that will be you know it'll become just expected um it, 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 instead of just a quick so you know the flavor of the week which uh which it often is i do think that overall things have improved if i look at dga representation as something i'm quite involved in um in television particularly over the past five years i, I do believe that the directors guild of america has made great strides to the point where it's now kind of 50 50 in terms of gender representation in, di- in television directing film has not got there yet um in terms of on-screen representation you don't need me to tell you how poor that is in terms of overall representation and and nor and as you say as two white guys talking about it i'm slightly uncomfortable about that it's not my kind of pedestal necessarily but i do feel that when i'm making a casting choice on succession for instance for any kind of role just to make sure that i question my own judgment and say if who are you picturing for that character and why are you picturing them why do they look like that and can they not look like that um just to um i think all directors or anybody making those creative choices just has to be increasingly kind of prescient of that and actually mindful of it to actually make a conscious choice to accurately reflect the world the the, the story that they're trying to tell i think those pauses of reflection are exactly the that are are absolutely key as said although i don't feel only actors who stammer should play characters who stammer i think actors who stammer should 100 percent be seen for them and seen for characters who don't stammer it's been one of the things in recent years that i've been excited in the self-tape era, is I can more comfortably go, well, here's a version not stammering. Yeah. <laughs> and if you fancy it, here's a version where I've taken the handbrake off. And this is just, it's not a yeah. key part of the character, but that's representation. Um, yeah, right. So I want to rewind all the way back again, because alongside the never-accredited cr- cr- Trevor and Simon, I think Vic and Bob are responsible for surreal comedy having such a place in the hearts of my generation and shooting stars was absolutely key to that. How was the, that that to be part of? Again, I think it gets overlooked as a show that, um, it, in my mind, it was the first panel show that acknowledged it doesn't really matter who who wins. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, what, what matters is what we're doing and how much fun and what the entertainment is. And I swear that hadn't been done before. Previously, even when it was entertainment-based stuff, people would still be quite trying to win. And shooting stars was the first one that kind of went... That that doesn't matter. So how was that to be part of such a yeah a groundbreaking a, a, a breaking format? It was a total joy. Obviously, I, I, Vic and Bob are still just um, probably the most unique comedians I've ever worked with, and I've had such a you know ride of working with some of the funniest people on the planet, and just spending so much of my working day laughing my socks off. Um, 
but they were the, to the point i remember being on set with vic and bob and seriously think i was going to actually piss my pants um <laughs> laughing so hard so many times they're just incredibly funny and so and and funny in the moment as well not just with prep work they're just a level of spontaneity and brilliance of of that surrealist view of the world oh, i can't it was a total joy i just loved it almost actually got fired before i actually started um i'd gone to the head of comedy john plowright um and and said um can i direct this thing coming up with vic and bob i kind of know him a bit because i was a second ad on the smell of reeves and mortimer and it's such a little you know cheap show can i um you know can i can i direct it said, yeah sure so i ended up you know as the production manager first assistant stage manager location manager and director but at the the production meeting before we shot the first episode the producer who's now a mate of mine alan mark said uh, and everybody was there as a tiny team but everyone was there including vic and bob and uh alan said yeah yeah mark we were yeah yeah great yeah we just uh we're just thinking that maybe you know love love you know everything you're doing but maybe you shouldn't direct it and of course and this is my first directing gig so with my kind of natural imposter state every part of me just thought okay of course i shouldn't what am i doing here this is ridiculous you know they you know they should have a really experienced director so i was looking down at my piece of paper just forming that sentence of yeah sorry about that yeah didn't mean to waste your time and i could feel tears welling up in my eyes and my face was going purple with the humiliation of it all but instead of saying yeah sorry about that i found myself saying no no i think i should direct it and then i just looked down at my piece of paper and started talking about the next item on the agenda of the meeting and i just kept talking finished the meeting and left you know just humiliated and waiting for the phone call to say no we weren't joking you're really not directing it and they obviously felt so sorry for me that they never actually said it so i went ahead and directed the first episode and uh and then they never talked about it again. But honestly, talk about the crossroads you come to in your life. Honestly, yeah. you've done what I would in any other circumstances have normally done, which is just gone, apologised and left the desk. Then may maybe I wouldn't be directing. Um, but it all worked out well. And the show working on it with their brilliant minds and my ambition to, you know, film these little film clips, you know, parodying, you know, music videos and film clips and was... Uh, it was just a match made in heaven. We just worked really well together and they became good mates, obviously. Um, I was a total joyful time. I loved it. I really did. I love it. I love it. And well, I mean, as we're getting into the last uh, 10 minutes here, you touched upon working upon uh, working with some amazing people. We can go through the fast show, Shameless, Ali G in the house, the Royal Family, all absolutely iconic pieces, but iconic pieces of British TV and British film yeah when was the leap to america and how was that transition because again it is famously very different in the style yeah. of production in the style of storytelling all these different things how was that change it was um it was extreme to be honest um in that it was a time of you know blindly 15 years ago now or more that, that yeah 15 years ago i think where i'd made a film that hadn't worked I was going through a horrible marriage breakup um, and trying to keep my relationship with my daughters intact. Um, and I didn't know what to do with myself. I thought I was going to be a filmmaker and I, just, and I was just making commercials, which was fine for paying the bills, but it was kind of soulless for me. And all, all my kind of um, ambitions and, you know, all my plans, you know, God was laughing and pointing, you know. Um, so I didn't know what to do with myself. And, um, and I got a call from hbo asking if i wanted to come over and do an episode of entourage because the makers of entourage which is an hbo 
show at the time had seen an episode i think they'd seen shameless the british version mm. that done and um so i said yeah I, i've watched all the you know dvds that night i think and, and just thought it's totally different this kind of blue sky it's completely different from the royal family or from shameless or anything that i've done really and i just loved it i thought anything just different i just need to do something different i need to get out of where i am so i went over to do one episode and just loved it i just loved it i almost got fired on the first day there as well um that's another that's story <laughs> um because yeah I know, i'll tell that one another one privately but i kind of staggered through the first episode and uh, and edit it and sent it in and they they really liked it so they invited me back for one and then another for the season finale and then they invited me back as you know producer director the role i played for the next season next three seasons and end up directing you know, the vast majority of the episodes for that three seasons that I stayed with the show. And it totally changed my life. I actually loved the whole American ethos and way of working. I loved I loved the blue skies. It's that superficial. I really did. Um, and the whole change, the fact that it was so different. And I loved that buoyancy. I met my wife there. I just enjoyed it. I just enjoyed the whole gear change and the whole new challenges and, and stimulus of that. And it just, yeah, that was it. It was a total game changer. And and then I just found myself feeling more at home there. Um, and I liked that I could, you know, pretend to reinvent myself there. Of course, we can't reinvent ourselves. We are who we are. We evolve, but we are who we are. But I, but I felt I, I just felt liberated by being there. I suppose I completely understand that. When I started off doing music, I got in a van and went and played a load of street gigs and open mics and stuff up north. Right. And part of the reason for that was I could tell them who i was there yeah playing yeah. locally i'm still the guy who used to work in hmv or or, or whatever else <laughs> yeah. but going up there i can be spoken word artist and rapper scroobius pip and they believe it and it really it, it it's an empowering thing i've not turned back since then but speaking of making those big kind of moves how was it to jump on to, to game of thrones because i've spoken Elena Hedy has become a, a dear friend in recent years. And I've spoken to her about the fact that, particularly when it started, Lena and maybe Sean were the only real biggish names. Mm, and it was all yeah. very new people. But by the time you were joining on, they'd all established a family. And, and you know, although it was the first gig for a, a, a lot of people, it was now the biggest show on TV, the biggest show in history, all that yeah, kind of thing. Right. That's not an easy one to walk into, right? But as you said, mm. you pitched it yourself and kind of said, I'd like to come and do this. How was that to then jump on oh, after really that initial moment of bumping into a, a Maid Marion and Merry Men alumni? Yeah, uh, it, it was it was pure terror a lot of the time. Uh, but, you know, the, apart from when I get, you know, the, in terms of the prep and just the scope of, you know, uh, and and doing this kind of crash course in, you know, advanced visual effects um, uh, and just working there and the whole kind of uh, storyboarding ethos that goes with that, which, of course, I'd done elements of, but never on that scale. Mm. So on a craft element, it was just a huge kind of education and particularly working with what's called previs, where you're working with the special, with the visual effects department and basically doing a kind of animation of sequences that you've, so you story board them um uh, and then it goes into previs and that element of just working through and, and realizing the creative potential of that tool was a yeah. great learning curve i love that in terms of storytelling once i get on set and i've got you know a brilliant crew a really amazing crew and, and this incredible cast you know particularly lena who was um 
who's you know probably still one of my favorite ever actors to work with because she kind of plays the black notes on the keyboard all the time and she never comes out a scene in a linear fashion you know she could be doing the most appalling thing and we'll be talking and she's saying you know and she's just a mother trying to protect her kids so she'll come at it from a completely human aspect yeah. and even when outwardly it seems like the most monstrous thing um and there's an absolute brilliance to that quiet contemplative way that she that she approaches the character um as soon as i'm on set working with actors it doesn't matter if it's a you know tiny little two-hander in a kitchen sink in salford or 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 big battleground to me because then i've then it's characters and performance and and nuance and, and and finding vulnerabilities and pain um and that i'm just that's my sweet spot i'm so happy in that zone i love it i love it and i also think the whilst on paper they may be completely different i think your experiences on Game of Thrones must massively inform Succession because, again, Game of Thrones gets already, I feel, I I, I discussed this a a little bit with John Bradley, already, Mm. I feel, gets overlooked for the incredible intricacy of the interweaving storylines of the different families, all this kind of thing. The beauty of Succession is those interweaving storylines. It makes me think of... Like I was a big a big fan of The Shield, and I think that was a show that was overlooked a lot for the way they would paint themselves into a corner that you you as a viewer can't see any way out, and yeah. then in in one scene they're completely out yeah. and moving in another direction, and it's just you, you you're sat there as mind blown as you are by a dragon taking down a whole army. Yeah, like, you know, it's it's, trick, it's it? equally yeah. as as awestruck. So yeah, I guess. To wrap things up, how was that to 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 transfer those skills, I guess, and bring it into a more intimate story, but a huge story nonetheless? I think certainly, you know, the the, the appetite I got for scope on, on Game of Thrones translated really well, and particularly the way that I wanted to enhance and and and, and evolve that with Succession. Uh, there was a lovely thing um, Adam McKay directed the pilot, and there was a quality that he brought to it. A, a kind of bombastic quality to it, which I loved. It was a there was a swagger, so there's a kind of arrogance to it, which which so perfectly fitted the kind of early Trump years when the when the show first aired. Mm. Um, and I, and I wanted to carry that forward and, and just push that more with our you know particularly when we try to you know replicate the lives of those billionaires. We don't have a billionaire budget, obviously, but a pretty good budget because it's HBO and incredibly supportive with that. Um, so pushing the it it enabled me to to push the scope, but very um, not economically, but effectively, I suppose. I, I, I'm able to capture a scene. I'll always start, I always kind of reverse engineer it. Whenever I shoot a scene, I'll start with the cameras in close. We'll mm. go straight for and I barely rehearse. Uh, I want the first raw instincts of the actors. And then we'll evolve and do the, our usual process to explore the scene from there. But we'll always start close. And only once I feel like I've got the nuance and the uh, and the journey of the scene will I start to pull wider uh, and start thinking about the basics of, you know, kind of visual storytelling. Um, I'll always go for the heart of it first. But I've evolved this way of actually getting that scope and scale quite quickly or pre-planning it. Actually, so much of it is in the pre-planning that even within limitations of, of, of series television, you have a certain number of days to shoot an episode that I can actually carve out time to make sure I get that helicopter shot, that drone shot or that that 
time of day shot to to give us that scope and that that bombastic quality that I think is so important to to reflect the tone and uh, of the storytelling. So it gave me a lot more confidence, I suppose, and just and a shorthand for getting to that within within quite a limited time frame. I'd love it. And w- 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 what a set of actors to drop into that pre-planning. But we could talk about this for hours. I'm going to end it there. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark. Oh, mate, I love talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was an amazing one. I think you'll agree. I'm back on Wednesday. Obviously, this was a bonus episode. Do you know what? Wednesday's one was meant to be a bonus episode, but it was so good, I made it a full episode. Like, we kept talking. Like, we had the time. So, tune in in for that. And then, yeah, loads more. The stuff I've got planned leading up to Christmas. Oh, Or you're not going to believe it. Tune in on Wednesday. I'll see you then. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.